Welcome to The Missing Piece, the international podcast. For decades, Tibetans are considered as the nomads. Needless to say, we don't get the chance to hear a lot about those people, how they live and their social circles. More importantly, how the culture and unique history brought the tourists and visitors across the world together. Pamela Logan can usually be found with her head in the clouds, moving uphill at the age of 19. While studying engineering college, she took up the martial arts and became fascinated with Asian cultures. Ten years later, she left her engineering career to investigate the warrior tribe of the Eastern Tibetan Plateau, a region known as Kham. Hooked on the exploration adventure, and she worked for a Hong Kong organization restoring Tibetan temples and probing Silk Road ruins. In 1996, she was named Woman Explorer of the Year. The following year, she started Khan Aid Foundation, a non-profit that assists the people in eastern Tibet with their needs for education, healthcare, cultural preservation, and economic opportunity. Logan's latest book is a chronicle of her development adventure in Khan. It's called Compassion Mandela, the Odyssey of American Charity in Contemporary Tibet. Pam, welcome to my show. Thank you, Li Mingfei. Very happy to be here. Well, I mean, again, as I mentioned in the intro, it's so fascinating for, I mean, not only the tourists in Asia, but also around the world. How come that we... We don't know much about Tibet today. And why do you think Tibet is being misrepresented in many ways in terms of its culture and the people? Uh, I, I think I'd like to start with how Tibet is being misrepresented. And, you know, there's a lot of information out on the Internet. There's a lot of journalists and writers and travelers and people who've been there and they all want to tell their story and so there's just so much information out there uh, and one thing that people kind of like to lay overlay their story that that affects their perceptions is the idea of a paradise lost mm. um, Shangri-La and sometimes people think well the paradise isn't lost at all it's still there and uh, they think Tibet is Shangri-La and so they really try to build their stories around this idea and that leads people to really kind of get tunnel vision and not see everything that is right in front of them out there. Okay, go ahead. Oh, so so a lot. One thing that people don't see is, uh, you know, for instance, I just saw a photo the other day of a couple of men um, standing next to, uh, I think it was a stupa, something Buddhist, and they have really beautiful expressions on their faces. You know, they're older men and and they're you know have crags and, mm. and they are weathered and they've lived outside. You can tell, and uh, and people, uh, so the person who published this picture on the internet. Um, captioned it compassion, which is, you know, a wonderful thing. And Tibetan Buddhism is all about compassion. But what I saw when I when I looked at this photo was dental care, because one of the men was grinning this nice big smile, and he, you could tell mm. he just had one tooth. Mm. And uh, there's real suffering that comes with bad teeth. You know, uh, that's something that is um, 
obviously very impactful on people's lives. And so I felt sorry that this man who, you know, clearly had a, a, a beautiful and great spirit couldn't have beautiful and great teeth to go with them. <laughs> so there's a, a lot of development issues, health, uh, healthcare challenges, uh, a lot of very, uh, kind of mundane development challenges that, that Tibet faces that people don't see because they only want to see Shangri-La mm. and they only want to see compassion. They only want to see beautiful things. They don't see the challenges. Uh, or if they're very politically minded, they think of it as paradise lost and all they want to see is victims. So uh, a lot of Western tourists come in there with the idea that Tibetans are victims and that uh, they're, bad things being done to them and they're in a very difficult situation because of their treatment by the Chinese. So, so there's uh, different perceptions that people have uh, preconceptions when they come in there. And so it really tends to narrow what they see and narrow their perspective. Exactly, Pam, because I'm very glad you mentioned again, based on the news and based on uh, the outside information, whenever we think about Tibet, we, in the first topic or uh, the normally a majority of the people would think about uh, Tibet related to political reasons. But actually, in this show, I want to look beyond the political reasons. Again, as I mentioned before, these people, and they brought their unique culture, and they have their unique history, and all put all the religion aspect all together. And let's talk about your book. You wrote this book, and can you tell us... What message are you trying to send or what message are you trying to deliver behind your book? And why do you think it's so critical for people who don't know Tibet enough or have never been to the region should read your book? A lot of people care deeply about Tibet and they want to go there or they've been there and they are perhaps they're Tibetan Buddhists or they just think it's a, it's a beautiful uh, and amazing and wonderful place. They really care a lot. Um, but if they have uh, bought into the victim uh, storyline, then they may think it's impossible for Western NGOs to do anything there to deal with health care, to address health care issues and uh, other kinds of development challenges. So uh, I've heard for years, you know, the entire 14 years and, and more, actually, I was working doing various kinds of projects in Tibet that I, I, I heard from people all the time, well, that's just not possible. You, you can't be doing that. Mm. And I also heard from people who accused me of being in the pay of the Chinese government mm. to kind of spread this, uh, you know, the disinformation that I was doing these things that, uh, like, uh, education programs, healthcare programs, job training, um, assistance for disabled people. Uh, they just couldn't believe that somebody would be allowed in to do that sort of thing. So one of the messages I, I really want to convey with the book is that even if something seems impossible, if you really believe in it, step up, start to mm. do it, take a, a little bites and just work on it because you never uh, would would expect sometimes the success that you'll find and you can really move the world if you just get started. You'll also find plenty of other people to mm -hmm. join you as I did. You know, people who care about Tibet wanted to join me and there were plenty of them and together we were just this unstoppable force. Mm. Well, Penn, you know, as you uh, detailed that you journey in the book and of course, 
when you went to Tibet and you stay there not just for a month, not just for three months, but you actually you were dedicated to help the people and help this region. You know, we say healthcare, we say education, etc. But can you tell us some of the most memorable stories or something that quite impressive or unforgettable? That maybe something you included book or something you did not include the book. Is there anything that's so fascinating for you that when you came back? Because remember, you are—I mean, you have a scientist. I mean, you have a science background. Yeah. So、um, I, I was out there doing this、uh, project to、uh, restore and protect some architecture and art found in a, in a Tibetan monastery in a place called Dege, and I had.、Uh, Been assigned to work on this project by the organization in Hong Kong that I was volunteering for, and so I was really at that time focused on the adventure、mm. and and on the art and architecture, you know, and and protecting those things is a very technical problem、um, with、uh, that requires lots of equipment, lots of experts. But while I was out there, and this is not in the book, while I was out there,、uh, somebody took me on a day trip. They said, "You got to come visit this school." So we went down the valley. We had to. I had to ride horses up another、uh, mountain slope, and about forty-five minutes from the valley bottom, there was this village, and there was a school. It was a school that had been established by the local people,、mm. and、uh, not a government school, and. Um, when I got there, the children were all lined up outside the school. They made this corridor of kids、mm. on each side of you know the route by which I was approaching,、mm-hmm. and、um, they all had their their these、uh, sutra books, you know these、uh, scriptures, Buddhist、right. scriptures, in、right. their hands, and they were reciting them in this just this incredibly loud, enthusiastic. Voices and just the the sound and the sight of these kids was incredibly moving to me. And this this、uh, this school was being run entirely on donations. They they didn't have government funding,、um, and so they really needed a second teacher because the one teacher they had was this old monk, and he could only teach Tibetan language, which was very effective. And the kids were learning that well, but they needed other subjects. They needed Chinese. They needed math. They needed, right. Uh, a lot of other things. So、uh, I was able to raise money, and it wasn't very much money. It was like sixty dollars, sixty U.S. dollars a month,、mm. which is really peanuts.、Um, and because of a donor's willingness to donate that money,、mm. we were able to send a second teacher to that school and、wow. really make the the future for these kids so much brighter. And when you find about needs like that that are so acute and and can be met with so little money and so little input, you know, you can transform somebody's life just so easily. All I could think was, how could I not do this? And then as time went by, and I got more and more involved, and I met more and more people, and I traveled lots of different places, and people took me to other schools and to clinics and to villages and. Uh, just all over the region, and this is、um, the eastern Tibetan plateau, a region、mm. called Kham,、uh, which on the map you'll find in western Sichuan province. So as I saw more and more of these things, I kept repeating to myself, "Like, how could I not 
do something about this because it is really so easy. It is it is very much within my means to find donors to help with these problems. So that was something I, I just couldn't stop doing. It was quite addictive and I kept going. Um, and it really began with those two lines of kids outside the school on, in this mountain village. Uh, it was above the, uh, the what they call in Tibetan the Drichu River, which is the upper Yangtze River, or Jinsha Jiang in, in Chinese. So that's um, that's where a lot of it started. It was right there. Well, Pim, you know, one of the fascinating questions that I asked um, previous our guests regarding their journeys to different countries and different regions in China or in Southeast Asia. And one of the questions I, I do want to ask you is, what was people's reaction when you actually began to say, hey, listen, I'm American and I want to help you or I want to help with the school because people need our help and I clearly I can help you to raise money where I can use my own effort to collect donation to support this education system because I'm because I'm deeply touched, etc. So Pam, I want to know how did people react initially to your help? Uh, a lot of Western tourists come in there with the idea that Tibetans are victims and that uh, there are bad things being done to them and they're in a very difficult situation because of their treatment by the Chinese. So so there's uh, different perceptions that people have, uh, preconceptions when they come in there, and so it really tends to narrow what they see and narrow their perspective. Exactly, Pam, because I'm very glad you mentioned, again, based on the news and based on uh, the outside information, Whenever we think about Tibet, we in the first topic or uh, the normally a majority of the people will think about uh, Tibet related to political reasons. But actually, in this show, I want to look beyond the political reasons. Again, as I mentioned before, these people and they brought their unique culture and they have their unique history and all put all the religion aspect all together. And let's talk about your book. You wrote this book. And can you tell us what message are you trying to send or what message are you trying to deliver behind your book? And why do you think it's so critical for people who don't know Tibet enough or have never been to the region should read your book? A lot of people care deeply about Tibet and they want to go there or they've been there and they are perhaps they're Tibetan Buddhists or they just think it's a, it's a beautiful uh, and amazing and wonderful place. They really care a lot. Um, but if they have uh, bought into the victim uh, storyline, then they may think it's impossible for Western NGOs to do anything there to deal with health care, to address health care issues and uh, other kinds of development challenges. So... Uh, I've heard for years, you know, the entire 14 years and, and more, actually, I was working doing various kinds of projects in Tibet that I, I, I heard from people all the time, well, that's just not possible. You, you can't be doing that. Mm. And I also heard from people who accused me of being in the pay of the Chinese government mm. to kind of spread this, uh, you know, the disinformation that I was doing these things that uh, like. Uh, education programs, healthcare programs, job training, 
um, assistance for disabled people. Uh, they just couldn't believe that somebody would be allowed in to do that sort of thing. So one of the messages I, I really want to convey with the book is that even if something seems impossible, if you really believe in it, step up, start to mm. do it, take a, a little bites and just work on it because you never uh, would, would expect sometimes the success that you'll find and you can really move the world if you just get started. You'll also find plenty of other people to mm. join you as I did. You know, people who care about Tibet wanted to join me and there were plenty of them and together we were just this unstoppable force. Mm. Well, Pen, you know, as you uh, detailed that you journey in the book and of course, when you went to Tibet, and you stay there not just for a month, not just for three months, but you actually, you are dedicated to help the people and help this region. You know, we say healthcare, we say education, etc. But can you tell us some of the most memorable stories or something that quite impressive or unforgettable that maybe something you included book or something you did not include the book? Is there anything that's so fascinating for you that when you came back? Because remember, you were—I mean, you have a scientist, a I mean, you have a science background. Yeah, so um, I, I was out there doing this uh, project to uh, restore and protect some architecture and art found in a in a Tibetan monastery in a place called Dege, and I had. Uh, been assigned to work on this project by the organization in Hong Kong that I was volunteering for. And so I was really at that time focused on the adventure mm. and and on the art and architecture, you know, and, and protecting those things is a very technical problem um, with uh, that requires lots of equipment, lots of experts. But while I was out there, and this is not in the book, while I was out there, uh, somebody took me on a day trip. They said, you got to come visit this school. So we went down the valley. We had to, I had to ride horses up another uh, mountain slope. And about 45 minutes from the valley bottom, there was this village. And there was a school. It was a school that had been established by the local people mm. and uh, not a government school. And um, when I got there, the children were all lined up outside the school. They made this corridor of kids mm. on each side of, you know, the route by which I was approaching. Mm -hmm. And um, they all had their, their these uh, sutra books, you know, these uh, scriptures, Buddhist right. scriptures in right. their hands. And they were reciting them in this, just this incredibly loud, enthusiastic voices and just the the sound and the sight of these kids was incredibly moving to me and this this uh this school was being run entirely on donations they they didn't have government funding um and so they really needed a second teacher because the one teacher they had was this old monk and he could only teach tibetan language which was very effective and the kids were learning that well but they needed other subjects they needed chinese they needed math they needed right. a lot of other things so uh i was able to raise money and it wasn't very much money. It was like sixty dollars, sixty U.S. dollars a month, mm. which is really peanuts. Um, and because of a donor's willingness to donate that money, mm. we were able to send a second teacher to that school and wow. really make the the future for these kids so much brighter. 
And when you find about needs like that that are so acute and, and can be met with so little money and so little input, you know, you can transform somebody's life just so easily. All I could think was, how could I not do this? And then as time went by and I got more and more involved and I met more and more people and I traveled lots of different places and people took me to other schools and to clinics and to villages and uh, just all over the region. And this is um, the Eastern Tibetan Plateau, a region mm. called Kham, uh, which on the map you'll find in Western Sichuan province. So as I saw more and more of these things, I kept repeating to myself, like, how could I not do something about this because it is really so easy it is mm. it is very much within my means to find donors to help with these problems so that was something i i just couldn't stop doing it was quite addictive and i kept going um and it really began with those two lines of kids outside the school on in this mountain village uh, it was above the, uh, the what they call in Tibetan the Drichu River, which is the upper Yangtze River, or Jinshajiang mm. in, in Chinese. So that's um, that's where a lot of it started. It was right there. Well, Pim, you know, one of the fascinating questions that I asked um, previous our guests regarding their journeys to different countries and different regions in China or in Southeast Asia. And one of the questions I, I do want to ask you is, what was people's reaction when you actually began to say, hey, listen, I'm American and I want to help you or I want to help with the school because people need all the help. And I clearly I can help you to raise money where I can use my own effort to collect donation to support this education system because I'm because I'm deeply touched, etc. So, Pam, I want to know how did people react initially to your help? Because, I mean, regardless speaking, is the language are very much different, right? So what was people's reaction at this moment? So the people who are helped are, are universally very happy and grateful. And if they weren't, I wouldn't be there. I mean, you know, there's plenty of need mm. and uh, no point in trying to help people who don't want help. So that's very simple. What is far more complex is how the government officials reacted, the, you know, the people in power out there. And obviously, uh, you can't just do everything under the radar, uh, you know, if, if you want to do it long term, if you want to be sustainable. So uh, I got to know many, many officials. And there were a lot of officials who didn't trust me, especially at first, and didn't know what I was up to. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, oftentimes, not always, but I sometimes had minders that were sent with me. And I'm sure every government official that I dealt with was asked to write reports and it was sent up to the Foreign Affairs Office and, and possibly to other offices within the government. So there was, you know, there's a big apparatus there. And um, it, w it really helped me that I had some good introductions right off the bat uh, by uh, to some officials. And so with starting with the art and architecture work, mm. uh, which itself aroused a lot of suspicion. I mean, people going to hang out at monasteries, uh, that is something that really raises a red flag for the 
Chinese government, right. definitely. Right. But that program was not started by me. It was started by somebody else who had pretty good connections in Sichuan. And so we were able to sort of stand up that program. And then I was able from there to kind of build my network and meet more and more officials some of whom, uh, you know, we either didn't get along or they didn't trust me or I didn't trust them uh, or they were clearly uh, not good people, maybe corrupt. I met a lot of those. Um, that's about one one chapter in my book is about some of the corrupt officials that we mm. ran into. Uh, but many others I found, yeah, I could work with these people. And, and we had common interests because uh, they're out there. Their job is, is to try to support development, economic development, and also education and healthcare, which are very important to economic development for the people. And uh, yeah, they have a, a very strong interest in maintaining stability and and uh, squashing dissent. That is, of course, part of their job, too. I have nothing to do with any of that, but I could definitely help on the, the economic development side. And there were many kinds of programs that the government officials and I and my donors, we could all agree this is a good idea. This needs to be done. Mm. And uh, although the Chinese government is just uh, overflowing with cash these days, this was certainly not true uh, 20 and 25 years ago. Mm. The government out there was extremely cash poor uh, and they had a very hard time doing anything. So, like, for example, um, in a lot of schools they had, and, and I think, Many of them still have, although it's been downsized. Mm. Uh, they had Tibetan language instruction, and uh, but they didn't have very many Tibetan language materials. They had mm. these little textbooks, um, and uh, that was it. In, in, and I'm talking about government schools. Sure. So, so for kids to get excited about reading, they need access to a broader array of books and mm. so we started first we started buying books that are published in china in the tibetan language and there were a lot of those and we basically bought out everything we could find this was in about 98 mm. 98.99 we bought out all that we could find among the several minority printing houses in china and then we started uh, printing our own books and i had a uh, a program uh, partner who was at the uh, sichuan nationality printing press okay. uh, who helped to, to get these things out. And they were science books written for kids. It was called, there were a series called Children's Fun Science. Mm. So everybody agrees, including the Dalai Lama, that people need to learn science. This is uh, not anything there's controversy about. So it was not hard to work out uh, publication of these books and distribution of them to a lot of very remote rural schools with the idea that this would get children more engaged in school and more engaged with learning. And if you don't engage the kids, you can just forget about education being effective. It's not going to work. Right. The right. kids have to be engaged for education to work. If, and without education, uh, there's so many things, so many doors that close for these kids in their lives for the future. There, and, and if you can just get them through school these days, there's a uh, mandatory that the kids, that all kids finish ninth grade. I don't know if they're actually pulling that off. That's It's pretty mm. hard to keep kids mm. in school. But at least through elementary school, through sixth grade, um, if they can get that much, then they're much better equipped to, to deal with the world and to survive and flourish. 
Well, Pam, the next question, I got two more questions before letting you go. The next question is, since you went back to the States and how have you uh, or how are you contacting or stay connected with the people or with the, um, the school or with the children, however the way um, you try to keep them informed or keep each other in the loop and just keep this friendship going? Uh, like pretty much everybody who has anything to do with China, there's an app called WeChat. Yeah, there you go. Which is <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, super useful. And it's, it's just so miraculous to be able to easily contact people in the 90s. It, uh, there was no email uh, until about 1998 mm. in these regions. And uh, connecting a phone call was extremely difficult, also extremely expensive. Uh, I used to, in the in the 90s, I used to send a lot of telegrams uh, from one Chinese city to another because that was the easiest way to contact people uh, right. who lived in areas where, where the phones were just really bad, right. phone lines. So, I mean, we live in such a different world today, and it is so much easier to stay in touch uh, and I, I use that. There's, um, of course, a lot of people I've fallen out of touch with, but some of the uh, kids we sponsored in school and uh, some of our, our uh, staff. Do they do and, they send you oh, pictures or anything about the kids, about the school, or about the places that you used to visit or used to, even the temple that you helped to restore? I mean, do, do you have any of this information? Um, I don't want to say on a daily basis, but once in a while you're like, wow, I can't believe, you know, the kids grown or hey, this changed so much. Well, they're all grown. <laughs> I don't think any of them are still in school. They're all grown. And many of them have really uh, solid jobs. They're teachers or they're working in healthcare, or they're even um, in the government offices doing administration, government administration. And so uh, there's a lot of people, like I said, that I've fallen out of touch with. But I have a, a very extensive network of people who care both Western uh, as well as Tibetan and Chinese who care about this part of the world. And so I'm always getting information and, and um, rumors and photos and all kinds of things. It's, it's coming to me and it's, it's not awesome. like I can in instantly call up, uh, uh, you know, like what has happened at such and such monastery that that's not so easy but once in a while I do get I get information in yes that's awesome Pam the last question it's a little bit complicated but I'm gonna try to make it simple is today we're living in this age or day and age we talk about where the word is globalization and a lot more times and regarding uh, what you do you could be a scientist you could be a teacher you could be a politician so many people like to say hey listen we need to fix our domestic issues before actually helping others. So in other words, people say, why bother to help someone or why bother to care about the culture, care about the history that actually has nothing to do with us? So how would you answer that question from your journey and your trip after all these years in Asia or interest in, in Asia, Asian culture and also in Tibet? Why do you think it's so important that we need to stay informed and also be willing to help with the people that, or even uh, uh, the group or region that has nothing to do with us or it seems like so distance away from us? I think from a, from a moral standpoint, the amount of inequity in the world is, is intolerable. Mm. Um, and 
so I think as as moral human beings, as ethical human beings, it is our our obligation to at least care mm. about the suffering of people in the developing world and especially in very poor parts of the world. It's not often that we have an opportunity to do anything about it. I was extremely fortunate that I got shown this school and then as time went by, I got shown a lot of other things. And also at that time, it was so cheap and easy Mm. to fix these problems. Mm. So, you know, that how can I not do something moment was very powerful for me and it just kept me going there. But for most people, probably that that tug, you know, that inspiration is going to come closer to home. And uh, there's certainly plenty of inequity in each of each country of the world. I don't know if there are any exceptions. Mm. So um, there's absolutely nothing wrong and, and plenty of, of rightness with just helping people closer to home. Well, okay, great. Well, Pam Logan's latest book, it's a chronicle of her development adventures in calm. It's called Compassion Mandela. There we go. She's holding the book. It's Compassion Mandela, the Odyssey of American Charity in a Contemporary Tibet. Pam, thank you so much for being on my show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Li Ming Fei. The pleasure is mine.